What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hey, what is up out there in Liberty Land, everybody? This is Brian McWilliams, your beautiful host. I don't know if you've ever seen me, but uh, mm, shockingly attractive, stunning to look at is what the people are saying on the street here. Anyway, welcome to Electric Liberty Land. I am uh, re-recording this now because I recorded it the first time and then realized that my mic settings were still jacked up. But now I have figured out the issue and I have fixed it, which is just grand news for you and me and your grandma and all of the children around the fireplace. So before we get into things uh, in total, go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL73 for any show notes you might want to view any of the stories I talk about today, including a link to Monday's show, which uh, Mark Clare, of course, always does our Monday in-depth libertarian shows and interviews. Mark had on three candidates for the libertarian chair position. And yes, I know there are more than that. Uh, People in our forum reminded us of that. Thank you. Much appreciated. Um, But hey, it wasn't my show, so don't whine at me. Anyway, we took the top three, uh, ostensibly right now that are viewed as the front runners, had them on the show for a, a debate. And those three were Joshua Smith, Alicia Dern, and current chairman, Nick Sawark. So they got together. They talked about their vision for the Libertarian Party. They talked about the role of the chairman. And they also talked about something else which is close to my heart. And that is the role of the chairman. And in fact, the role of the party in regards to elections that are going on around the country, candidate support, and in a larger sense, for me, and this is what I'm going to talk about a little bit, messaging and media presence. How this came up was that Joshua Smith had brought up the instance of the Roy Moore uh, special election and talked about how Roy Moore was a leading candidate. He was in the lead by a good amount until this sex scandal broke, and he was then incredibly vulnerable. So you've got a candidate's leading among GOP and, uh, you know, libertarians, we have an easier time converting people from the right than the left. So the point was that Joshua thought Nick should have flown to Alabama, held a press conference, or in some way tried to impact that election because there was a libertarian vying for that seat. Nick responded saying, well, you know, we can't just fly around all over the place like a kid chasing a soccer ball and yada, yada. So I understand his point. And Alicia basically agreed with with Nick, I believe. And um, and his point was, was well taken that the Libertarian Party has very limited funds. We can't have people fly all over the place. Well, I can't say we. I'm not a, I'm not an official member. Uh, but we can't have people flying all over the place from the party wasting that money, jumping on jets, et cetera. I understand that. The money isn't there. Just like the Libertarian Party cannot support the 2,000 candidates that people would like to see out there running for office. In fact, I would venture to say, in my personal opinion, that the Libertarian Party should pick and choose maybe 10 candidates at most to support at this point in time and instead 
put their money, put their time into messaging and media. And that's where the crux of this comes together because Josh brought this up more talking about how the messaging of the Libertarian Party isn't resonating at the point uh, right now. I mean, and, and I agree with that. I look at what's going on with Facebook. I look at what Nick is doing on uh, his social media. I look at what Arvin's doing on Facebook. And I look at the stuff that's being put out on the official pages and Nick's point of view that essentially was voiced saying that we need to appeal to the people that are fighting against the power that is in place. So if, we, for instance, Trump's in office now, his point was that we need to try to cuddle up to the leftists that are resisting Trump. And if there's a Democrat in office, we need to sidle up to the Republicans that are resisting whoever's in office for the Democrats. That to me is exceptionally misguided. That to me simply looks like you're weak and you're pandering to people. Now, I'm not saying this to attack Nick. I understand why he's trying to do that and how he's trying to go about wooing people to the party. But at the same time, the Libertarian Party's messaging right now is incredibly weak. And you need to have a viewpoint which is consistently strong. Libertarians, if nothing else, can say we are consistent in our beliefs. We believe these things. And it doesn't matter, for instance, if there is somebody that people are branding as a Nazi voicing his opinion that is free speech. We support that. And the, on the other side of the coin, libertarians have also supported gay rights forever and the rights of individuals forever. Gay, you know, gay rights. We were for gay marriage before anybody was for gay marriage. Consistency, ideological consistency that doesn't waver according to which way the wind is blowing. That's what attracted people to Ron Paul. His voting record was very clear. He stood for something, and that was very attractive and is very attractive to people. Now, playing into that, the Libertarian Party seems content right now to be putting out Facebook memes, and I, I don't even think they do media relations. I, I haven't seen any full-time staffer come on there. I don't see... Nicholas Sawark out there doing interviews on any television programs. I don't see him speaking with any media outlets. I don't see him anywhere. I don't even see him on libertarian shows with the exception of our show. And thank you, Nick, for coming on. <laughs> Again, I'm trying not to attack you uh, here. It's just a, I have a very different feeling for how things, how money should be spent that's very limited funds to further the libertarian message. And I know Josh, uh, in voicing his viewpoint that the Roy Moore special election, that Nick should have flown out there and had a presence and called a press conference. Now, that is probably a step too far. I don't feel that's needed. I've been doing public relations. If you don't know this, if you're new to the show, hello. I've been doing public relations as a career for 15 years. I am very good at it. It is not easy. And... Public relations is essentially sales. It's sales from an intellectual standpoint of, well, at least the way I do it, of trying to find a way that you work somebody's idea, somebody's personality, somebody's show, somebody's product into a narrative that can make that bigger than it is. You need to make something more attractive than it could be on its own. That's how you truly get to, get to invade media that you would not usually have a shot at. I mean, we call it a grappling hook in my business uh, for what we do when it's something's going through the news cycle. Roy Moore, we'll use that as an example since we brought it up earlier. You have a libertarian candidate running in that, that election. You've got a man who's leading the race laid low. You don't have to fly out. You simply send out a media alert. You call your friends in the media that you've tried to develop relationships over time. 
that are talking about this election that write for the New York Times or, or book people to come on uh, ABC News in 60 Minutes, whatever. You get in touch with them and you say, hey, you need to talk to libertarians. You talk to Nick Sirwark here from the National, he's the national chairman of the, uh, the party. He can give you a viewpoint on how this can help other candidates. Or you can give you, he can give you a viewpoint on any of these national conversations we're having where if something happens where there's religious freedom, that's a perfect opportunity to go in there, have Nick or someone else that is adequately adept at speaking and uh, actually expressing the views of libertarianism properly weigh in and say, here's why this is important. Here's why this has to go the way of free speech and not the way of authoritarianism. And you do that in a way which people can understand simply and relate to. But you make your, make sure yourself you're, you're in the conversation. That's the biggest thing. There's nobody in the conversation right now. They, you know, the Libertarian Party, they had posted an ad saying, oh, we're looking for somebody to do PR. And this is probably eight months ago now. And I shot the guy an email who was listed on there, somebody at the, at the uh, National Convention, or excuse me, National Party, said, hey, are you looking to hire an agency or are you looking to hire in-house? And if so, what are you paying? The response I got was they wanted to hire somebody to come in-house and they wanted to pay them $35,000. Now, off the top of my head, I don't know where the Libertarian National Party is based, but I can tell you that $35,000 is something I would have made in my second year as a professional doing public relations. That's something that nobody that isn't coming directly out of college, and this is 13 years ago, I'm talking, in modern day money, I don't think you could get anybody that even has a degree to take that job for $35,000. And you're trying to hire somebody to come in house and do this? So I told him, I said, look, I'm a libertarian. I'm a public relations professional. I know this ideology inside out. I would be interested in helping if you are interested in hiring an agency to do it. I'm not going to do it full time. They're not interested in that. I don't know if they've hired anybody to this day. So the Libertarian Party remains on the outside looking in on all of these issues that are pertinent going on today. We're talking about social justice. We're talking about freedom of speech. We're talking about rights of minorities. We're talking about rights of gays. We're talking about the actions of the United Nations going on. I mean, just last show, you heard me talking about the United States' record supporting horrible causes or refusing to support good causes like the investigation of Israel's actions in Gaza Strip based upon its own shoddy politics and internal interests. There's an opportunity for a libertarian chairman to comment on every single topic, every single day. Now, will that happen? No. But you know what? If you have somebody in place to push that message out there and be in touch with journalists on a regular basis, at least you have a shot. And Alicia Dern had said, well, you know, I don't think anybody's going to have a libertarian on these shows. You know, why, why would they? they? They don't care about us. Well, you know what? They may, for the most part, not care about us. But I know for a fact that it's possible. You know how I know? Because a friend of ours in podcasting and in liberty, Dave Smith, is on a national show regularly. On HLN. On SE Cup show. And you know what? He's doing pretty damn well on it as a voice of reason. He gets a lot of great response out of that. He's out there fighting the good fight. Dave Smith is out there right now as a stand-up comedian with a podcast representing libertarianism for 
thousand times better than the chairman is. And taking nothing away from Dave Smith, but that is an embarrassment for the party. If you want to be taken seriously, you need to step up your media game. You need to make sure you're out there so people know what you're doing. You can't just pop up every four years and be like, hey, guys, remember us? We're libertarians. Are you sick of Donald Trump yet? <laughs> that nut. What a jerk. Are you guys still sick of Hillary? Huh? What about Bernie? <laughs> Bernie. It's not going to work. Anyway, that's that's my viewpoint. If you're going to use funds, if you're going to use very limited funds, public relations, media relations is a force multiplier. You can take a small amount of investment and turn that into so much media coverage, so much money coming in via donations, so many more people Googling libertarianism, so many more people listening to our podcast because they are turned on to the ideas of liberty by somebody And I'm not saying this is any of the people running necessarily, or I'm not saying it's not anybody running necessarily, but somebody out there representing the party in official capacity and saying, this is what this party stands for. And this is what it will always stand for consistently. Okay, on to the next topic. So you guys remember I talked quite a bit about guns a few episodes ago. I'm not going to go into it all again because of this most recent shooting. I'm not going to mention the shooter's name because these guys are simply looking many times to go out in a blaze of glory. They romanticize this concept of I will always be remembered in my vengeance. And this most recent shooting in Texas, which involved a shotgun and a handgun, meaning that no regulations that are on the books, no anti-gun background checks, etc. would have stopped this from happening. This most recent event, though, according to the shooter's father, was caused by bullying. So it certainly seems as though this was an act of vengeance, at least according to one source. But the whole concept of bullying ties into what I was talking about before, where you've got people that are so intolerant of others, others' viewpoints, creates isolationism, the symptoms of online bullying, wherein... Any little instance of something that goes wrong can be magnified and go viral within a community in a number of hours. But just the internet in general, combined with parenting's tactics and strategy that have taken hold these days, I think are really the driving issue behind this. Because this is clearly now, as I said before, not just a matter of guns. It's not a matter, although some people have suggested that psychotropic drugs play a role, that is very possible that they could be playing a role. Because if you look at things that existed before, like gun culture has been in America forever. It was far more prominent before. The access to guns was far more prominent before now. Yet we have more of these instances happening. Perhaps that has to do with psychotropic drugs. For me, I still think it has to do with the culture that we fostered and that we live in currently, wherein you have parents that are basically abdicating their responsibility to raise their children. They're farming it out. They're putting their kids in these government schools wherein they can be bullied, where they can be ostracized, where the teachers don't give a goddamn. When they come home, they're not spending time with their kids. The kids are in after-school programs. I I know a lot of parents out here in L.A., and it's uh, one program to another program to another program. These people don't see their kids. It's just basically they're an extension of the family that... 
they'd prefer was taken care of by somebody else. So if there is an issue with your kid, if your kid's depressed, if your kid's being bullied, if your kid's doing this or that, you don't know about it. Then the kid comes home, goes on the internet, goes online, plays video games, talks to people, whatever. There's no communication happening. And the parents, because they don't want to be overbearing, they don't want to be like their parents and crack down. They don't want to be seen as these authoritarians when it comes to parenting. They say, okay, well, you know, everything's fine with my kid. I'm not going to force any rules on him. I'm not going to uh, ask him to, to clean his room. If he says he doesn't want to do it, well, I'll just gently persuade. But, you know, there's no direct conflict here. So you've got a situation wherein there's no positive influence because there's no communication going on. There's no concern being shown for this kid. So the kid's got no nobody that he'll say or she'll say, okay, if I go and shoot up a school, not only am I hurting the people that I perceived as having wronged me, and this one, uh, this most recent one, seems like it was from bullying. So again, it seems like a vengeful situation, at least according to the kid's dad. But you've got nobody that these kids say, well, you know, if something happened to me, even if he's not concerned about the victims, he says, okay, well, you know, if I do this thing, who am I hurting that I care about? Because that's what I'm thinking about. I mean, you guys, I, you know, I'll, I'll embed the last show I did on this because there's a vast amount of, of information there, uh, or at least my opinion that I'm throwing out. I don't want to rehash that again every time this happens, but I want to add something to it. And it's this thought about isolationism. So these kids are isolated. They're on their own. They go down this dark path. They have no reinforcement in a positive light. They have no friends to say, hey, don't do this. Or if, if the kid's keeping a secret, it's just that concept of I'm not only hurting the people I'm intending to hurt, but who am I hurting that I'm not intending to hurt? I mean, I think about that myself. If I drink too much, if I do too much of whatever, and I'm like, you know, God, if I die tonight from these <laughs> ill-advised choices I may have made during the course of this evening, what am I, what's my wife going to think? What's my wife going to do? She's going to be destroyed. What's my family going to do? What are they going to think about me? What are my friends going to think about this? Clearly, these people that are doing this, it's not just a matter of them being psychotic or crazy or being unbalanced, although I do acknowledge that psychotropic drugs could be playing a role in what's happening. But I think a lot of it comes down to simply being isolated. And the current culture we live in, this internet-based culture, is an isolating culture. Even if you do have friends, you're still isolated. Communication, interpersonal communication has broken down. People now are perfectly comfortable texting and emailing and emojiing and Snapchatting and whatever else, but it's mostly a one-way communication. When you're tweeting something out, you're not really looking for a response to it other than someone hitting the like button. When you're posting on Snapchat, you're simply looking for positive reinforcement from people. You're not looking for dialogue, and people don't know how to interact anymore. They don't have community groups that they've they value. And I think we're seeing that play out. You know, we talk about Americans as a culture, right? You know, we had this conversation in our first uh, roundtable discussion, you know, Liberty Behind the Lines. She did out here uh, with Dave Smith and Jason Stapleton. And, you know, one of the topics that was raised is why don't we, you know, one somebody asked, why don't we rise up? When's the time that we would rise up 
and fight the government. We're actually fight. Guns, rebellion. And Dave and I both agreed on this point. Well, basically, everybody on stage agreed on this point, is that that time is, I mean, unless things got so bad where they literally were going to try to come door to door and take away people's guns from them, that's when you would see a civil war occur. That's when you'd see people rise up. But until that happens, we simply have too much to lose. You know, we look at our situation compared to all these other nations across the world. We have too much to lose, man. I can't go fight a war right now against the cops. I'm not going to go rise up. I got a house. I got a, I got a wife. I got dogs. I got uh, video games to play. I got alcohol to drink. These kids, I'm saying hopefully they, you know, maybe if they had a alcohol to drink, that'd be all right. But no, these kids, they don't have enough to lose. It's, the, it's that plain and simple. When you look at the situations, even if they're in a nice house, they say, There's, you're still a kid. So when you're a kid, you own nothing. You own some posters. You probably own a titty magazine. Maybe you hit it in the woods. You got a Lamborghini poster on your wall. You might have some books. Maybe you got a couple of video games. You own almost nothing. So your physical ownership of things isn't really weighing into something. When you decide you're going to go murder your classmates, that's not weighing in. But what should weigh in, what should be too much to lose is the family unit, the friend group. And that's what I'm saying is occurring. You combine that with the parenting, the lack of a, the lack of wanting to have conflict with your children so they don't know how to handle anything. They can't overcome any adversity. And their initial reaction is simply to bury it deep. And then eventually it builds up and they snap. But when they've got no community group, you have nothing to lose. And you also have nobody to support. You have nobody to notice when something's going wrong, to talk to you and work this out or to talk you off the ledge. So that is my most recent edition, the latest chapter in Brian's guide to why this shit keeps happening. Okay, one more thing, and then we're going to take a little break. I do want to talk about uh, something on the lighter side, which is Starbucks. (laughs) Starbucks employees and customers have now expressed concern over a new policy, wherein Starbucks is calling it like the third guest policy or something. Some really stupid name. And essentially what Starbucks is saying is because they got in trouble, in Philadelphia, because two black guys sat in the restaurant uh, or the coffee bar, whatever you want to call it, <coughs> excuse me, sat in the restaurant and didn't order anything, wanted to use the bathroom. We're told they couldn't because you have to order something. And then when they were asked to leave, because again, they had ordered nothing and were sitting in someone's private property, refused to do so. So the manager of Starbucks, like anybody that's owning a restaurant or owning someplace where people are loitering and taking up valuable space. And if you've ever been to Starbucks, they get very crowded. They ask these people to leave. They refuse. So they call the cops. The cops come and they got the co- The guys refuse to leave again. Even the cops ask them to leave. And they insist that they were there waiting for a friend to do a real estate deal. Now, first off, let's just use a smidgen of logic before we get into the, the fallout of this. Smidgen of logic. If you're sitting in a Starbucks waiting to do a real estate deal, you don't have $3 to spend and get a cup of coffee. Instead, you'd rather sit there, be a fucking asshole, and then make this into a national thing and try to make it out like it's about race. Are you kidding me? 
It's no race issue here. I'm sure in Philadelphia, which is a city with a pretty large African-American population, I'm sure thousands of black people go into Starbucks every single day without issue. But you know what? If you want to go in and sit down and do nothing and take up space in a crowded place where people are actively looking for seats, looking for places to work that are paying customers, you should get the fuck out when they tell you to. Either buy or leave. If you went into a convenience store and sat on the floor in the middle of the aisle and somebody said, hey, can you leave? You couldn't make a scene and then say that it was racist for them trying to kick you out. You were impeding their ability to do business. So Starbucks, though, being Starbucks from Seattle, of course, that's where the the corporate offices are. (laughs) Good old Seattle, man, at the core of every idiotic thing that goes on in the world at the moment. But good old Starbucks, instead of saying, hey, no, this is ridiculous. Uh, You know what? Uh, Apologies for the way the situation happened, but our policy is that you have to pay for something if you're going to sit in the Starbucks. They now have had mandatory closing of the stores for a day to have mandatory sensitivity race training, which I I, I don't even know what you tell people. Hey, hey, don't kick black people out of the Starbucks when they want to use the bathroom. What do you even teach in this situation? But no, their new policy now is that Anybody can go in to Starbucks and hang out and use the bathroom. So if you have any stock at Starbucks, guys, you might want to sell that right now. Because I'll tell you what, when I go into Starbucks and it's crowded at the current time with customers, most of whom are bathed, most of whom don't have shit covering their pants, most of whom aren't drug addicts. You know, even when there's a line there, it's a little crowded. I say, you know what, Starbucks, I'll, uh, I'll skip it. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go to McDonald's. I'll go make my own at work. Not a big deal. But, you know, now when I go in there and I see 15 homeless people lining up, when I see a crack addict passed out in the bathroom with the door locked for two hours, you know what? I'm not going to go to Starbucks so much. When I go in there and there's homeless people at every single table or just general jerk offs sitting around, just working on the laptops, not not paying for anything, not doing anything, just sitting there again, not going to go in there because why would I? Why do I want to deal with hassle? Because it's not only about who gets to come in and sit down and leave. It's also what the, you know, like if you go to an establishment that's known for having people in there that are penniless, moneyless, just looking for somewhere to hang out, why would you want to go in and have a beverage or buy something from that establishment? Why would you want to put yourself in a situation where those people are there, many of whom are probably on drugs or crazy? And I'm not knocking people that are on drugs or even half the people that are crazy. But why would I want to put myself in danger in that situation? Because, look, everything in life is risk-reward. When you walk down the street, it's risk-reward. If you see some crackhead mumbling down the side of the street, which in L.A., we got a ton of, you tend to avoid that street corner. And you know what? I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of mumbling crackheads around all the Starbucks. So not only am I not going to go in the Starbucks, I'm not going to go anywhere near that Starbucks or anywhere in like a half-block radius of that Starbucks. It's just, this is the outcome of idiotic policy trying to please a very small minority of vocal idiots in the world that are causing these type of issues, that are intent on making a scene out of it. And right after this break, I'm going to talk about the most recent, the most pathetic, and the most ridiculous instance of causing a scene over nothing. A little something I like to call the white girl trap. So we'll be right back. 
We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com. Once again, that is conversationmattime.com. All right, welcome back to Funky Town. This is Electric Liberty Land, episode number 73. Again, you can find all the show notes, including past episodes that I just referenced at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL73. Starting to lose my voice a little bit here. I'm like, I have this little tiny little cough. I just can't get rid of. Anywho, we're back. So <laughs> let's talk about the white girl trap. No, it's not a not a clever name for a bar in the Hamptons. Or it's not a Lindsay Lohan movie, uh, you know, a sequel to The Parent Trap, but with Lindsay Lohan and blackface trying to catch white parents. It's not that either, although I wouldn't put it past her this time in her career. Now, this most recent white girl trap involves the rapper Kendrick Lamar. He is a a Pulitzer Prize winner. Kind of funny to say that. Pulitzer Prize winner. I think he won a bunch of Grammys this year, too. Yada, yada. So Kendrick Lamar is one of the biggest rap superstars of the day. Happened to be having a concert in Alabama, right? Alabama. And it was massively attended. Now, you'd think that would be a good thing to have all these white hillbillies out in Alabama. Nothing against you Alabamians, by the way. But uh, just let me finish my point here before you start sending me death threats and, uh, you know, roadkill. So in Alabama, you got a ton of white people coming out to see a black rapper. You know, pretty good stuff, right? Pretty happy about that. Seems like everybody's getting along. So Kendrick Lamar brings up somebody to come on stage, happens to be a white girl, to sing along slash rap along to one of his songs. And I don't even remember what song it was, but it happened to have the N-word in it. Now, in this instance, and I was going to pull the audio from it, but honestly, the audio is so bad that uh, the people are sharing around where he did this. It's not worth it. It'll just blast your eardrums out. It's horrible. But he brings her up on stage. You can hear him rapping. You can hear her rapping along, right? Because he's giving her the mic. She's you know, brought her up stage for a reason. She, it's not like she charged the stage. He brought her up there. Remember that. So she's singing along, and she says the N-word, Two times, and then on the third time, and again, she's not just screaming this out. She's not like, I'm loving being on stage with Kendrick Lamar, my niggas. No, she's not doing that. She's saying it in the context of the song with the lyrics that Kendrick Lamar wrote himself and invited this girl up on stage to sing with him. Third time she says it, because it's the third time the lyric is being said by Kendrick Lamar, he stops the show, right? Wait, wait, wait. Everybody stops playing. Not like it doesn't take like a minute where, you know, people are confused or the band's confused, which is very telling. Wait, wait, wait. Everybody stops playing, right? Hold on, girl. I got to tell you, you got to bleep that. You got to censor that last part. And he then bitches this girl out who's confused as hell and rightly so confused as to why 
He stopped, confused as to why she's in trouble, because she's just a big fan, super fan that was in the front row, came to see one of her favorite artists, and then was over the moon to be invited on stage to, to sing with him. Stops and then tells her that she can't say that, that she's got to censor herself because she's white. Now, I want to point something out here, too. It wasn't that, as I listened to the audio, and you can hear pretty clearly, she's saying nigga, the more socially acceptable term, not nigger, nigga, in the song. So he stops to chastise her. Again, a girl he brought up on stage knowing what the song lyrics were and gave her a microphone. He brings her up on stage just to bitch her out. How fucked up is that? And that's how you spring the white girl trap. I mean, Jesus Christ. Seriously, this is the... It's it's just a, him setting a trap for this girl to walk into in front of... Thousands of people. He, She should sue Kendrick Lamar. Because he has basically brought her up on stage for one, one thing and one thing only, and that is to destroy her life. This girl now is trending on Twitter. She's being covered by every major media outlet, all of the music trades, all of the national uh, TV channels, all the social media has blown up because this poor girl had the audacity to sing the lyrics the artist wrote with him on stage after being invited to do so. How dare she? Because she's white. And he knew exactly what he was doing when he invited her up there. He knew he invited that girl up to make her into a laughingstock, to make her into an example of what white people are not allowed to do. That's pathetic. That is disgusting. And people are seeing this, like people are applauding him, like he's some sort of, oh, wow, yeah, good for Kendrick Lamar for standing up for black people. Fuck you, Kendrick Lamar. And fuck anybody who thinks like you. Fuck anybody who thinks that what you did is okay. What a jackass. I mean, goddamn! Can you imagine if somebody, if, if if any country singer invited a black guy up on stage? The number one, it would be awesome, and everybody would be super into it. But then, if you if he invited somebody up on stage to sing some song about a pickup truck or something, I mean, hey, well, there's no real good. I'm trying to think if anybody ever used Cracker, Uncle Cracker. How about that? That's a that's a white negative white turn. Granted, look, nothing's got the power of uh, the N word, but. Let's just say for shits and giggles, Uncle Cracker comes brings somebody up on stage and has a song where he raps the word cracker and he black brings a black person up on stage and the black person says cracker and he's like, Oh, you can't say that. It's like you wrote the song, man. You know what that was you know what you brought me up for? People wouldn't stand for the stupid shit. But no, Kendrick Lamar is so woke for calling this girl out that he set up like a patsy to take down and ruin her fucking life. God damn, man. You are a piece of shit. Oh, God. I wasn't going to curse in this episode, but I gave that up, man. You got a first half of not cursing. So if you want to share any thoughts about gun control with people in the first half, tell them not to listen to the second half because that's where it gets dirty. I just, I'm just, oh my God. What a piece of crap that guy is. All right. Anyway, on to the next topic. <laughs> 
fathers' rights movement, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to convolute this with the men's rights movement, which has a bad reputation, despite the fact that there are some very, very, uh, prominent things in the men's rights movement that should be paid attention to. And father's rights is at the top of that list. So that's why this is so interesting in that Kentucky has moved, and this is official. It's a done deal. Kentucky has now moved that instead of having default child custody go to the mother's side, which is essentially what every court in the land has. The mother, unless there are extreme examples given, unless the father can prove without a doubt that the mother is completely unfit, and that is incredibly hard to do. Kentucky now is the first state to say default joint custody. Both parents have equal custody over the child. That is a major step forward for father's rights, and that is vitally important because one of the issues we have in society today is the breaking up of family units. And if I'm an independent guy, I'll tell you that much. And God bless you. If you, whatever way you want to live your life, go do it. But we've seen the decline in family units coincides with the decline of people's economic status. We've seen that it completely destroys your chance of having economic upward mobility. The number one indicator, number one indicator of economic status, being able to jump from one socioeconomic strata to the next is having an intact family. Go look it up. And that's why we're seeing so many people get stuck and trapped in these lower socioeconomic areas and, and, uh, and strata. Because when you don't have the family unit, you are at a severe disadvantage. You don't have two people making income to be able to provide all the things that you need, education, stability, oversight. Like we're talking about these, you know, these shooters, having people there to talk to you, to take care of you, to communicate with you, to teach you, to fund you, to be able to put you in a better school, to be able to work with you on your homework. That's a huge way to get ahead. So anyway, this father's rights movement is a big deal because so many times you'll see fathers that are very fit parents be completely abandoned by their the mother and they take the kid and they disappear. And the fathers have virtually no ability to see their child. They have almost no rights. It's a shocking, shocking system that's set up. And people talk about the power of the patriarchy, but you're talking about this situation. Fathers have zero rights. So this is a huge win for Kentucky, which hopefully will spread because the more access fathers can have to their kids, the more chance there is that that kid's going to have a better life and have that better chance of upping the status of socioeconomic stability and prosperity. So this is awesome. And I'll tell you, I, I've talked to guys in person about this. When I was in Japan, hanging out this tiny karaoke bar, there was an Australian I was talking to in there who was just absolutely devastated because in Japan, this has, uh, I think, more to do with the status of the uh, the person as far as being a citizen or not, because in Japan, even if you live there, you're still not a citizen. Only uh, natural citizens are citizens. So, or you have to be, have, like, you know, born into the Japan Japanese family. So, he had married a Japanese woman, had a, I think it was a daughter, and then she decided, well, we broke up and we got a divorce, but I'm taking the kid, and you now can never see this child again. And in Japan. Because he's not a citizen and because the custody goes to the mother, he has not been able to see his child. And he's fighting for it. He's a guy who is a school teacher. It's not like he's you know out there slinging meth or uh, in the Yakuza. He's a school teacher. Cannot see his child. 
and hasn't been able to see his child more than he said a couple of weeks a year at most. It's destroyed him. That happens more often than you would ever believe. So good job, Kentucky. That's awesome. Little uh, little pep in your step there. Uh, let's finish up this episode as my throat really starts to uh, to get sore on me. Let's finish this up, talk a little bit about what's going on with Trump in North Korea, as well as, well, this will be very quick. Trump, instead of saying, some of these articles saying bows to South Korea's uh, request that they cancel the military exercise, but he did, in fact, cancel the military exercise I was complaining about last week. Good job. That's just simple logic. Makes sense. Why would you just destroy a deal before it even happens, especially when things are going so well? So, hey, little golf clap for Trump there. Uh, on the other hand, China on the tariff front, China has agreed that it's going to halt the tariffs on American products. So Trump's blustering. You know, I, I, I hate tariffs. I hate that Trump has put tariffs on things. I can't stand the concept of tariffs. But it seems to have worked in that Japan or not, excuse me, China has gotten rid of the tariffs on products because that they simply cannot afford to uh, to lose American business in that manner. So. Another win for Trump, guys. Uh, I don't, I can't say I like the win, but that is another win for the man. And we're seeing all the polling is trending towards his way. I honestly think that uh, despite all of the media's fervor and anti-Trump rhetoric, we're really going to see things turn insanely Trumpish over the next couple weeks. And you look at North Korea, you look at the economy. You look at what's happening with China and you look at what I'm coming around to now, the Mueller probe, which seems to have completely grinded to a halt. And even deeper than that, within this whole concept of Russia and collusion and Trump and the uh, the FBI being politicized against him. Well, now it's come out that they actually have the name for an FBI informant who was, in fact, embedded within the Trump campaign. A man named Stefan Halper, who is not only an FBI informant that was paid over a million dollars under the Obama administration during the time when Trump was campaigning and also stayed on even after the election. He was paid over a million dollars by Obama's administration. Let me just say that again. He also oversaw a CIA spying operation during the 1980 presidential election. And then he was doing it under uh, George H.W. <laughs> and he was doing a spying on Carter. So this guy seems to have a, quite the role to play when it involves with being a mole within somebody's uh, political campaign and clearly has no horse in the race because he's doing it on behalf of uh, George H.W. Bush spying on Carter. Then he goes ahead and does it for the FBI on behalf of the Obama administration spying on Trump. And once this gets the coverage it deserves, which I, I don't see a way around them covering it. I, I mean, there's just CNN might be able to ignore it, MSNBC, but when you've got The Intercept covering it, you've got The New York Times covering it, this story is getting out there. When you've got somebody that is officially on the government payroll, and I believe it was uh, a Department of the Department of Defense subcontracted or something like that to pay him, but he's working as an FBI informant. But he's doing this well before any of the Russia collusion stuff even came up on behalf, at the behest of the Obama administration and the Obama-controlled FBI I, I don't know what else you could say. I mean, it, it destroys 
All of the collusion talk, it destroys the entire concept of the Mueller probe, which is based upon FBI documents, which were coming from Peter Strzok and all these other investigators into the Russian collusion, which leaked stories to the media, which then were used as the excuse to get the FISA warrant based upon media reports on this Steele dossier, which was created by Hillary Clinton uh, in conjunction with uh, some other group as well, like one of the PAC groups. I mean, there's no way you can continue to push any collusion narrative. In fact, it looks like it's going to rebound back on Obama. I mean, one of the things that you brought up in our pride call, which is the other reason I'm a little hoarse because we had our uh, our $25 Mufasa-level pride call, which we're doing on uh, video now via Zoom, and, uh, which is cool. You, know, you got all the people in there. We do our little video chat to get feedback from people and shoot the shit. But we you know, got brought up and say, can you, you, know, can you go ahead and just proactively pardon Obama for this right now? And it would be kind of funny if Trump did it just as a publicity stunt. I mean, I don't know if you can actually go ahead and prosecute Obama. There's enough deniability there. There's enough layers and enough people that will throw themselves on their swords to protect Obama and what Obama is and his joke of a legacy. But it would be a great publicity stunt, wouldn't it? Because it's certainly seeming more and more like there is, without a doubt, a plot to undermine Trump, a plot to set him up, a plot to uh, try to destroy his chances of winning the election via use of what is supposed to be a clandestine and uh, unbiased government wing and a very powerful government wing that controls many of the uh, abilities to spy on communications, to read uh, electronic documents, to read virtually any communications that go back and forth. I mean, this is major. And once this goes out and destroys all of the anti-Trump talking points that the media is pushing, I don't see any way that the man's going to be stopped. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for libertarians here. Now, I said this earlier, there, despite Trump's wins, which just keep piling up, what we can do and I'd voice this on our uh, our pride call too. So sorry, sorry, Lions Pride, since you're going to hear this twice. But where this gives up us uh, an opportunity is that everything that Trump's doing that's going right, the exception of this goddamn tariff bullshit. But when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to uh, his approach, like if he actually does pull out of Afghanistan, when it comes to his approach on deregulation, helping the economy, when it comes to cutting taxes, especially corporate taxes, and how that has helped the economy to continue to roll in a very strong fashion. We can point to all the things that Trump has done and say, this is what we were advocating for all along. And not only that, but we've been pushing back against the infringements from the social justice left. And as we see, a lot of these these people in the primaries, especially the Democratic primaries that are winning, are fringe left because there's primaries that are packed. They've got like seven, eight, ten candidates running for Democratic office right now because they're all jazzed up because the anti-Trump hashtag resist. <coughs> so they're all getting out there. They're throwing their hats in the ring. But all that's doing is dividing up people's votes And so you're having these people with the crazy vote rolling out, these psychos that are coming out for these crazy leftist, socialist, social justice policymakers in droves. Well, the average Democrat's not going to go and vote for that nut. So perhaps they will look instead to an option that can provide them 
the anti-war sentiment that's been so lacking in this country that can provide them, even though they may not like it, they'll see the effects of the deregulation, see the effects of businesses sprouting and spreading, see the effects of record low levels of unemployment, see the effects of a rapidly increasing uh, domestic product. They may have to take a long, hard look at libertarianism, especially since they hate Trump so much. Libertarianism can be the best parts of Trump and the best parts of democratic thinking, but with the consistency and ideological tact that those parties lack. Gonna do it for me. Uh, I'm gonna uh, continue to have coughing fits if I keep going. So, guys, I'll wrap it up. Uh, whew, it's been a hell of a week for me. I'll tell you that much. I am uh, stressed out more than you can ever imagine. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Hopefully, that's gonna be resolved sometime, <laughs> sometime soon. Anywho, thank you guys for joining me. As always, I am Brian McWilliams. As I mentioned, Mark Claire has his in-depth interviews with leaders in the libertarian movement on Mondays, and I will post a link to the libertarian chair debate that happened this past Monday. Check that out. It's very interesting. And of course, John Odiodermat on Fridays with Felony Fridays, our in-depth look at the criminal justice system and all of the issues within it, talking to people that have been in the system, that are fighting against the system, and that are working to help the system. Well, not help the system. But you know what I mean. <laughs> so, guys, thank you so much for me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land. I want to remind you to always stay plugged in to liberty.